Let us now read together what we confess. First of all, what we confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 23. You can find that on page 457 of your Book of Praise. There we find God's Word summarized as follows speaks about our righteousness before God, that's the heading. We believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and that therein our righteousness before God consists, as David and Paul teach us. They pronounce a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, apart from works, Romans 4 and Psalm 32. The Apostle Paul also says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3, verse 24. Therefore, we always hold to this firm foundation. We give all the glory to God, humble ourselves before him, and acknowledge ourselves to be what we are. We do not claim anything for ourselves or our merits, but we lie and rest on the only obedience of Jesus Christ crucified. His obedience is ours when we believe in him. This is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in drawing near to God, freeing our conscience of fear, terror, and dread, so that we do not follow the example of our first father, Adam, who trembling tried to hide and cover himself with fig leaves. For indeed, if we had to appear before God, relying, be it ever so little, on ourselves or some other creature, woe be to us, we would be consumed. Therefore, everyone must say with David, O Lord, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for no man living is righteous before thee. Psalm 143, verse 2. And now let us read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. You can find that on page 497. There we find God's Word summarized as follows. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. 
I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 24, the stanzas 1, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, also you boys and girls, this afternoon has to do with our faith, with what we believe. The Catechism asks, what does it help you now that you believe all this? In other words, it wants to know what the benefit of our faith is. What good does it do you that you believe in God? How does my faith help me? And that's also the theme for this afternoon's sermon. In other words, that one sentence summarizes what we're going to talk about this afternoon. The question this afternoon is, what's the use of being a believer? What good does your faith do you, for example, when you are in financial difficulties? or when you lose your job, or when you have trouble with other people? What good does your faith do you when your husband walks out on you, or when your children treat you with contempt? What good does your faith do when you are ill? You're still dependent on doctors, and you die just like everybody else. What good does your faith do when you are in the middle of a war and you are hungry and miserable and separated from your loved ones? What good does the faith of anyone do them in their specific circumstances? Shailen Dijkstra, for example. What good will the faith of Shailen Dijkstra do to her as she grows up? For she is going to be brought up in a family that believes. That means that when she is old enough, she is going to be expected to come along to church to receive a Christian education and to go to catechism classes, etc. It means that she is going to have to deny herself all kinds of things as well. On Sundays, she will have to come to church and there will also be certain activities that she will be excluded from. She also has to learn to conduct herself in a certain manner. It's also going to take a financial commitment. When she starts earning money, she will be expected to pay for church. What good is all that going to do her? And these are good questions to ask. For at times we have to take stock and to take a close look at what we're doing. Often we do certain things out of routine. It's part of our way of life. And we feel comfortable. It can be that way with our faith as well. Every Sunday we put on our good clothes, at least most of us do, and make our way to church. We don't give it much thought. It's like eating the same kinds of foods all the time. We eat the kinds of foods that we are used to. We eat that food whether or not it is good for us or not. The only way that we will change our routine is when we have health problems and the doctor wants us to change our diet. That's when we have to examine what we eat. It may mean that we have to go on a different routine. Perhaps that is the way it is with your faith as well. 
Take a look around you. There are a lot of unbelievers who are doing very well in life. They are prosperous. They live in beautiful houses. They belong to the exclusive clubs and they have their toys. And they don't seem to have a care in the world. They are not accountable to anyone, so it seems, especially not to God. They can live however they want. And they have the respect of the community. People look up to them. Perhaps that's what we should aim for as well, and make our faith to fit that. That's what some evangelicals have done who embrace the theology of prosperity. That kind of theology is taught by some TV evangelists. The basic tenet is that if you believe in God, and God will bless you, and you will become materially wealthy. For that's what God wants for you. He wants you to be prosperous, just like Abraham was a wealthy man. You can become the same. Did you notice, brothers and sisters, and that includes you boys and girls, that so far all we have been talking about is ourselves, about what we can get out of life? But that's not what the Catechism does, is it? The Catechism has us take a look at God and our position before God. For it answers the question about the usefulness of our faith by stating that the benefit is that I am righteous before God. And that puts things in a completely different light. The Catechism says that's not, that it is not first of all about us, but about God. We have to be in a right relationship to Him. And that is possible only if you have a true faith it says. And you see, that's where the shoe pinches. People have their own ideas about their relationship with God. Most people in this secular society even believe that there is a God. And they also believe that when they die, that they will go to heaven to be with God. How do they come to such a conclusion? Well, they look at their own lives and they compare themselves to others and observe about themselves that they're not all that bad. They say, oh sure, I make mistakes and do wrong things, but there are a lot of good things that I do for others. I'm a good mother or father. I'm also a good neighbor. I try to get along with people. I work hard. I don't steal or rob banks. I'm not a drug addict or a drug dealer or a pimp or a prostitute. And so, as far as I'm concerned, I don't really have anything to worry about. God is a loving God, and he knows that I'm a good person. The Pharisees also thought along those same lines. But they went much further than this. That's what that parable that we read in Luke 18 is all about. It speaks there about those who are confident of their own righteousness. Now, that's a big word, righteousness. Do you know what that means? It means that you are innocent. That you are innocent with respect to the law. That you're not a wrongdoer. Oh sure, you may break the law a little bit here and there, but nothing serious. Like someone who speeds five or six kilometers above the speed limit. But that's not a big deal. The police officer won't even stop you for that. It's too minor. In spite of little infractions, you are an obedient citizen. 
And that's how the Pharisees, during the time of Jesus, saw themselves. They saw themselves as righteous, as obedient citizens of God's kingdom. Now, these Pharisees, they were the leaders, not just in the church, but also in the society of that day. They belonged to the Sanhedrin, also known as the Council of the Elders. These were highly respected men. And they were also of the opinion that they were worthy of such respect. For they looked at their own conduct in comparison to others, and they found the others lacking. Now the Lord Jesus in this parable refers to such a Pharisee. This man went to the temple where he stood up and prayed about himself. That's what it says in the text. And that in itself is noteworthy. It doesn't say that he prays to God. No, he prayed about himself. He was quite taken in with his own piety and worth. The whole prayer is about him. He thanks God that he is not like the other men, such as robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like that tax collector who was also in the temple at that time to pray to God. Tax collectors were a hated class of people during those days. For these men were contracted by the authorities of that day to collect, to collect tithes and indirect taxes. But many of them were corrupt. They were prone to extortion and malpractice. Not only did the Jews despise these men, so did all of the Roman citizens throughout the empire. The Pharisee compares himself to that tax collector. And he reminds God that he is not like him. On the contrary, he even goes above and beyond what is required. For he tells God in his prayer that he fasts twice a week and that he gives a tenth of all he gets. The Old Testament requires fasting only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this Pharisee did it twice a week. And so, what does he boast of? He boasts of his works. In other words, he believes that by the kind of person he is and the wonderful things that he does, that thereby he has a special place in God's heart. The Pharisees were very religious people. But it doesn't mean that they were true believers. On the contrary, they are believers in themselves, not in God. In essence, they are not any different than those people of the world who think that they, because of the good things that they do in their lives, will earn a place in God's heart. They will look at their own life and even compare it to those Christians that go to church and they think of themselves that they are better, or at least not any worse. In church, all you find is hypocrites. For you see, in order to base your salvation on the good things that you do, you have no choice but to compare yourself and your works to others. And there's always somebody who is more evil than you. You can thumb your nose at many different kinds of people. Even in jail there is a hierarchy of criminals. Robbers and swindlers and drug dealers look down on sexual abusers, especially sexual abusers of children. They despise them. They're glad that they're not like them. As far as they're concerned, they're the scum of the earth. 
And that's also how we measure. We measure ourselves by the conduct of others. But if that's what you do, then you are measuring with the wrong standard. For then you don't measure according to the standard of God. And that's what the tax collector did in the parable. He measured himself according to God's standard. It says that the tax collector stood at a distance when he prayed to God. He did not even look up to heaven. That was the normal way for the Jews to pray. They prayed standing, just as the Pharisee did. And while they prayed, they would lift up their eyes to God. Although the tax collector stood, he did not dare look up to heaven. Why not? Well, that's obvious, you might say. Tax collectors were immoral people who extorted money from others. However, not all of them were like that. And not only that, there are also very legitimate aspects to their work. Taxes have to be collected. That's the only way that society can function. And so they had a legitimate vocation. Except that many of them extorted more money from the populace than they were permitted to. But that doesn't mean that they were all like that. But nevertheless, they were all despised. For if you were a tax collector, then you were lumped in with the rest. But the tax collector in this parable was not some arrogant bureaucrat who took whatever he would be able to get away with. No, he was someone who was humble and who also wanted to humble himself before God. And that's why he didn't dare look up to heaven. He didn't feel worthy. He knew that he belonged to a despised class of men. And he knew that he stood guilty before God. He did not compare himself to the tax collectors who were worse than he. No, he compared himself to the standards that God had set in his law. The Catechism asks the question, how are you righteous before God? In other words, how can you be acceptable in God's sight? How can you be innocent before God? The first part of that answer deals with our sins. It deals with our consciences that accuse us of the fact that we have sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and that we are still inclined to all evil. It deals with our sins. When I held a speech a few weeks ago for the ministers and their wives of Western Canada, then I dealt with the horror, with the horror of the sexual abuse of little girls and how devastating this is to the victims and how we are to deal compassionately and understandingly with the victims. For I told them that this also happens in the church, sometimes even by upstanding members of the church. One of the ministers then asked me how it is possible to deal compassionately with the perpetrators of such horrific sins. He was obviously and understandably repulsed by such men. And my answer came down to this basic element, namely that we are all sinners. Potentially we could be that abuser. Potentially we can be any horrible sinner, including murderers and rapists and drug addicts. Here for the grace of God go any of us. 
It is only through God's grace that you and I are protected from such sins. But potentially we are all capable of the most horrific things. By nature we are not any better than anyone else. It is only because of God's grace that we are who we are. And that's very hard for us to own, to understand, and to put into practice. But that's clearly what God says to us in his word. Time and again the scriptures tell us that none of us is innocent before God. Not one. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even our holiest activities, including our church going and our praying, are permeated with sins. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 64 verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And that's because we are sinful by nature. We have the same tendency as the Pharisee, namely to put our own interests first, to make even to make even ourselves look good in God's eyes. Now it is of course true that we are important. But you have to put that within the framework of the relationship that we have with the Lord our God. Without Him, we have nothing, and we are nothing. And that's what we have to acknowledge first. And also the fact that God accepts us in spite of our sins. Sometimes the lament is heard that the preaching in our church is not joyful enough. Often this is uttered by people who do not have a sufficient awareness of their own sinful nature or who live in sin and who want to continue to live in their sin. And therefore they don't want to hear anything about sin. They don't want to be reminded of their sin. There are some churches who avoid the word sin altogether. Everything is nice and wonderful and lovely. And that's true, but you can only come to that conclusion if first of all you look at your sin. If first you look at yourself and do as the tax collector does who beat his breast pointing to the seed of sin which is the heart and who goes to God for mercy. And that's what the catechism says. It says that I have not kept any of God's commandments and that I am still inclined to all evil. It says, all evil. As we also heard this morning, we are capable of the most horrible things, all of us. And then the Catechism comes with the most beautiful statement you have ever heard and you will ever hear. You will never in your whole life hear a more beautiful statement than that. Right in the middle of answer 60 it says, Yet God, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ. Do you want to hear about joy? 
Well, here is the joy, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. He imputes, that is, he gives us free of charge the righteousness and holiness of Christ. And he does that in spite of our sinful nature. We don't have to do anything for it. We can't. God does it all. And it is for that reason that we come together here in this church. Not as a witness to the world that we are better than others. No, on the contrary. As a witness to the world that we are sinful people who need to be redeemed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who need to be rescued from their sins. Article 23 of the Belgian Confession says it beautifully as well. It says there that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus' sake. And that therein lies our righteousness before God. Therein lies our righteousness before God. In the forgiveness of our sins. God forgives us our sins. And now we are declared righteous. Innocent. It is only because of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words, brothers and sisters, come directly from the scriptures. We read it in Romans 3 verse 24. Namely that we are justified freely. How? By God's grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When Martin Luther some 500 years ago was struggling with his faith. And then he came to the verse of Psalm 31, verse 1, which says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. And then Luther thought to himself, How can God deliver me? Even though he was a learned man and had a doctorate in the Bible, He could not get his head around this. He kept on wondering what God requires from him. And he questioned how he could come into a right relationship with him. And that was because of his Roman Catholic upbringing. The Roman Catholics state that you have to do something for your salvation. And that's what most people of the world think as well. But once you go down that path and really take that seriously, then inevitably you are going to run stuck. You run stuck especially if you compare yourself to other people. For there may be people that are worse than you, but there is always somebody better than you as well. Luther finally figured it out when he came to Romans 1 verse 17, where it says that our righteousness comes through faith. Not through works. Not by doing good deeds. What a tremendous relief that was for him. Salvation is by grace alone. It is free of charge. It is not because of anything that we do. Brothers and sisters, Boys and girls, if you think that we are together here because we are such good people, then you are mistaken. By nature we are not. The very fact that you and I are here is God's doing. He worked that in our hearts. He caused us to be brought up in God-fearing families. Or He led your life in such a way that you became part of this covenant community. 
if you would have been brought up in miserable circumstances, with abusive parents, or without any parents at all, if you had been brought up in the midst of hatred and despair, who knows how you or I would have turned out, or the kinds of things that we would be doing. But God has been gracious to you, and continues to be gracious to you and to me. And therefore you have to believe in Him. But let's not make faith a work of ours either. Those who believe in the baptism of adults do that. They say, or who believe in the baptism of adults only, and not in infant baptism, they do that. They say that you are justified because of your faith. But listen to what the Catechism says. It says, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. In Article 22 of the Belgic Confession says that faith is merely an instrument. The instrument does not save you. God saves you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it says in Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift from God. Even that faith, that instrument, is not something you give yourself. No, God gives it to you. But now He also wants you to use it. In other words, you have to believe. To have faith, to believe, means that you put your trust in God. That you believe when He says to you that He will forgive you your sins. And when you believe then you also live out of that belief. Then you are thankful, just as that tax collector was thankful that God accepted him. It's for that reason that he also went to the temple, because in the temple you experience the forgiveness of sins. And that's also the way it is in church. To believe means that you have to be like a little child. For that reason, the Lord Jesus speaks about little children right after he speaks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Little children walk humbly with God. As Shailen gets older and hears about God, she will not doubt for a moment. That's the way children are. And that's why it will be such a blessing for her to grow up in a believing family, in a family that will tell her about God who he is and what he does, and she will accept that from her parents. We read in Luke 18, verse 15, about people who were bringing their babies to the Lord Jesus. It says there that when the disciples, when, when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. How does my faith help me? What is the use of believing? What is the use of attending church and doing all the other things that belong to a life of faith? Well, through faith, you are righteous before God. You are innocent in His eyes. To believe. That's the only way. It's not through works. It's not because you're so good. It's because God loves those who accept as all things as coming from His fatherly hands. That 
brothers and sisters, is the benefit of our faith. There is nothing greater than that. Amen.